0: Father God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to know you, that you have made available through Scripture, through history, um, even through pagan historians who recorded things that they didn't even know would be used by Christians to make a case for Christianity. Thank you, Father, for how you have guided in history and how, most importantly, you've revealed yourself to us through Jesus. And Lord, may I be surrendered in my heart today. May You come through, and may each of us listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, so that we would take this information and not be hoarders of it, but that we would put this information to use in practical ways with people that we know in a way that would bear fruit for Your kingdom. Bless us now, and may Your Holy Spirit be here, Father. We love You. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. This whole seminar... Uh, It's called Reasons for Hope, the Case for Faith in a Secular Age. Maybe some of you have heard before of the term apologetics. Anybody heard of the term apologetics? Uh, Well, if you have not, Christian apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. Apologia, and as I'm going to hook up my clicker here... We have our apologetic mandate in Scripture. You can follow along on the slides or you can open up your Bible if you'd like. If you were to turn to 1 Peter 3.15, this is sometimes referred to as the apologetics mandate in Scripture. Try to get my little clicker working here. Yes, all right. The apologetics mandate in Scripture given to us by the Apostle Peter. And he says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it in gentleness and respect. So according to scripture, we are encouraged to always be ready to do what? Give an answer answer for the faith that is in us. And yet to do it in such a way that we don't leave the person feeling like they got beaten with a stick, right? Because it's one thing to lovingly share uh, your faith. It's another thing to be like, I got an answer for that. And (laughs) I got an answer for that." And hopefully you've never accomplished, like you've never come across people like that. Uh, But the idea is to not, obviously, to not be that type of Christian. But the term here to make a defense is the Greek term apologia, which literally means to to give an answer, not necessarily to apologize. So when we talk about Christian apologetics, it's how do we give an answer to uh, a generation of people or to people who are not believers, who are skeptic regarding the truth claims of the Bible, of the existence of God. And so the intention of this seminar, and I'm really happy that the theme is being a witness because I think something that's really cool is this is an incredibly practical way to meet people in the 21st, uh, very, the 21st century, which is increasingly uh, skeptical and increasingly secularizing. And so hopefully what you get today and throughout the week of these seminars, this is something that can be helpful for you. Um, <clears throat> We also have this counsel, though, as well. I don't want to be negligent of the fact. I don't want to oversell a clever argument. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said about worldly wisdom? It's foolishness. And the gospel is considered foolishness to the worldly wise. So I'm not at all trying to oversell this as like, this is it. You don't need need biblical arguments anymore because you can just have all these facts and all of a sudden you've got somebody to be a believer. Well, that's not really the case. That's a bunch of dumb if somebody tries to say that is the case. All right. So uh, we have this really important counsel from Ellen White. Uh, While God has given ample evidence for faith, he will never remove all excuse for unbelief. All who look for hooks to hang their doubts upon will find them. And those who refuse to accept and obey God's word until every objection has been removed and there is no longer an opportunity for doubt will never come to the light. So um, you can spend a lot of time saying, well, I'll wait for one more thing to really convince me of the truths of the Bible. But you can wait too long on that. Does that make make sense? So the attempt with Christian apologetics is to train ourselves not to think that we can fact people into surrendering to Jesus. Yeah, please do. In fact, there's a handout for you right there. there. You can take one of each. And if anyone didn't get a handout, there's some up here, and we just ran out. Uh, buddy up with somebody next to you, and look at look over their shoulder, and you can share with somebody. All right. So the the, the main and, and important thing here is that we're never gonna uh, we're never gonna argue somebody into the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? But what we can do is we can try to provide uh, good and. Um, convincing evidence that could help remove barriers for doubt for some people because here's the thing in Adventism we have a lot of very sweet and surrendered people but sometimes if you're a person who's in your brain you spend all your time over here kind of like in maybe like math science and rationalities and you want maybe some more cold hard evidence then oh I just felt sweet in my soul and there's nothing wrong with over here you know the dear sister who I just I just have this tender and sweet connection with Jesus and that's awesome right Jesus says blessed are those who he said to Thomas in John 21 blessed are those who believe without having seen right but at the same time that doesn't mean that we're to totally neglect the brother over here who's saying but how do i know any of this is true how do i know i can rely on it so that's what we're going to be looking at today today we are looking at faith and history there's so many things we could talk about in history and as every single history teacher knows and there's at least one more in here other than me and that's my dad i teach history as well you know that you can never cover everything in history. So really, you kind of just start to pick and choose what you think is the most important and try to give people the tools to know how to study it for themselves. So rather than make a case for how Christianity has almost single-handedly created Western civilization, which if you want to have a conversation about that, I think I can make that case. Rather than going into that type of stuff or mathematical probabilities uh, for Jesus being the Christ just by uh, computating them from Old Testament prophecies, we are going to look at the questions, the New Testament, is it reliable history? Do we have evidence to believe that it's reliable history? Do we have evidence to believe that it is written by the people that uh, it says it was written by? Do we have evidence to believe... That it hasn't been changed through the centuries, and then finally, we're going to finish looking at my favorite of them all. We're going to look at, uh, at evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to try to make a cumulative case for the historical reliability of the Bible. But first, some common exec- objections. Have you ever seen uh, or heard of the Da Vinci Code? Really, yeah. really famous bestseller that hit the press. I don't know; it was well over ten years now. But uh, left behind, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of uh, there's a popular film series, and I think even a, a popular television show that came out by the same author. Um, if you go to Barnes & Noble today, and if you're to go to any religious section, generally what you're going to find uh, is you're going to find a lot of New York Times best-selling uh, books by a guy named Bart Ehrman, who is considered one of the most, get this, he's a New Testament scholar, but he's an atheist. So he's, he's built his whole career in um, kind of building historical cases for the New Testament, but also at times trying to really discredit and say, ah, but we don't really know for sure. Who really knows? And so here's the thing: there's a lot of information out there that tries to sell you these types of ideas that Jesus never existed. Uh, you'll hear people say that, "Hey, there are no sources for Jesus outside of the New Testament. If he's so historically important, why doesn't he appear up? Uh, why doesn't he appear elsewhere in other sources?" Uh, or people will say, "Hey, Jesus was just a man, and actually his life uh, got turned into a myth later on." Anybody heard this before? Somebody yeah. heard this? People try to say, oh yeah, the, the early generations of Christians eventually as the generations went on tried to say that Jesus was actually just a myth and they eventually turned him into a god. But Jesus never really claimed that for himself. You understand this is what a lot of skeptics claim nowadays. Another one, the New Testament was changed throughout the years. That's a common one. How can we trust it? Because it must have been changed. Um, and then finally, people have a lot of issues with the resurrection of Jesus. So there, there is a good reason for us as Christians to be well-versed in being ready to have intelligent conversations with people. I think so. If you don't believe me, Acts 17, Paul is there on Mount Olympus. He's addressing, uh, he's addressing Epicurean philosophers. They aren't Christians and they aren't Jews and yet he reaches into the things that they know, into the language that they speak. He reaches into their collective communal history and he makes a case for faith from agreed upon sources. Acts 17. That's really cool. You can look it up there. Okay, so here we go. Jesus claims. Of course, people have a lot of reasons for wanting to evade the fact that Jesus was uh, who he said he was. People have a lot of reason to want to say that Jesus was made up or that you can't trust the New Testament. And here's why. Jesus claimed things like this. So we have him being asked in the Gospel of Mark. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I am. Jesus also said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, right? We know that's part of the gospel commission. Well, that's a really big claim. All, yeah. Imagine if you like, met a person in the street who's like, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You'd be like, brother, I hope you're quoting scripture. Otherwise, you're insane, right? I and the Father are one. This one got him in trouble. There's another one we're going to hit here in a moment that really got him in trouble. Uh, so John five thirty nine, he says, hey, you search the scriptures, talking to the Pharisees, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet all these scriptures, and Jesus is referring to a whole corpus of literature that's existed for over a thousand years predating him. He says, all those talking about me. It's a big claim, right? It's a huge claim. Uh, here's one that almost got him stoned. In fact, the very next verse right after this, he's saying, "Ah, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And the Jews are like, what? You're like not even 40 years old. You're not even 50 years old yet. And you said that you've seen Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, remember what he said? I am. I am. He's claiming the name of the Old Testament God in Exodus 3 from the burning bush story. And they knew right away because the very next verse says, and they picked up stones to kill him. I think that's John eight fifty nine. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Okay, imagine the nerve of somebody saying this to you. Hey, Isaiah, if you keep the things that I say to you, you're never going to see death. Maybe you think I'm an intriguing character now. (laughs) Maybe I'd be interesting for like a modern news story, but I'm probably not somebody that you're going to take incredibly seriously, right? So, Jesus made a bunch of claims, I will come again and take you to myself. The whole Adventist, uh, our worldview uh, is directly attached to three angels' message. The last warning message bring a, a warning message to the world, specifically in the context of Christ's second coming, hinges on Jesus' statement, I am coming again, right? And then um, he predicted his manner of death, and he predicted that he would rise again. All right, now if there's one thing that he could maybe, that he could do, that would actually all of a sudden turn your head and maybe make you believe all these things, I would say it's related to this. Because if that guy does what? If he dies and then if he rises just as he said, then all of a sudden you have to take a whole lot more seriously all those things that he said about himself. So a lot of times people will say, hey, well, so what's the big historical difference between Jesus and Buddha and Islam and Muhammad? I mean, it's all religion. It's all the same thing. No, it's not. There's only one person in history who claimed to be God in the flesh and gave a specific sign, that specific, and then at least according to several historical sources that we have, it seems likely that that's exactly what happened. The ultimate claims of Jesus force us to admit one of these conclusions. I think either what he said, the claims that he made are true, right? Right? Or they were false. Now if they were false, but you're saying these types of things, has anyone ever met somebody who said something like crazy like this before? Yeah. Yeah, what'd you hear? I, I've met a guy a yeah. Oh really? Okay. <laughs> I wonder if it's the same guy that I talked to. I don't know. <laughs> you heard one before? What would you hear? Well i heard um, that guy yeah, wasn't real. Okay. So you've heard some of the some of the uh, objections that people have? So I met a guy once at a food pantry who said that he was the reincarnation of the angel Gabriel. I don't know how he thought that, but that was a really, really interesting conversation. <laughs> anyway, so if somebody makes a claim like this, it has to be true or false. There, There is maybe a possible other, and that's that, hey, they didn't actually make that claim to begin with. We're going to look at that, okay? But... Um, <clears throat> What I want us to understand is that when it comes to what we choose to do with Jesus, when you're having conversations with somebody and they're like, oh, I don't really know if Jesus was really who he says he was or if he's somebody else, I think one thing that we can be safe in saying is this. No, no, no. He made some really big claims, and we need to personally say, was, were those things true or were those things not true? Because if they're true, how important is that? It's the most important thing. And if it's not true, it's absolute lunacy, Right? So it's either of utmost importance or it is of minimal importance. The only thing it can't be is just, meh, kind of important. So we understanding the seriousness of what we're doing here? Okay, so um, one scholar, um, several scholars actually, this came from the late medieval scholar Thomas Aquinas. C.S. Lewis has also talked about this, that he either had to be a lord, liar, or lunatic. Well, everything that we know about Jesus from the way that he lived his life from establishing a huge, uh, an an amazing system of teachings and ethics that even secular uh, scholars and novelists throughout the age uh, have said, Jesus established this beautiful code of ethics that bypasses almost anything we have from the ancient world. So, he doesn't seem to be morally culpable of being a liar, okay? Okay. And yet he did so many things that seemed like he was calm and he was reserved. He doesn't, he doesn't exhibit traits that necessarily show that he was a lunatic. So all of a sudden we're faced with a really serious option. Well, then let's investigate the claims that he actually made. Let's investigate the history surrounding it. Make sense? So we're going to see. look at first, is the New Testament reliable? The New Testament has delivered to us the information that Jesus claimed and the claims that the apostles made about Jesus and on it, we rest our entire faith as Christians, and specifically, especially as Seventh-day Adventists. So let's ask the question. Now, here, now I want you to understand something. I believe the Bible is inspired, every lick of it. I'm assuming probably the reason that you're here at camp meeting and not just on the weekend, but not that weekend people are evil, but like you're here, you're here on like Wednesday, which means you're like, I'm going to camp meeting. So hopefully you probably also believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but we need to understand there's people who don't, Right? There's people who don't. And so we got to look at, okay, this is the historical. I'm now going to put on a different hat. I teach history. So I also teach, I teach history and I teach Bible, but I'm going to put on a historian's hat for some of the time that we're going to be spending in class today, all right? And I'm going to be looking at this the same way that a historian would look at any other series of ancient documents that we have from antiquity from the ancient world, all right? And we're going to measure it up up against some of the same criteria that a historian uses for any text, all right? Make sense? All right, so we're going to be looking at ancient manuscripts. That is, the things when you go out in a shovel in the Middle East or somewhere and you dig out these old pieces of parchments of paper and you have fragments and little pieces of writing. We have ancient manuscripts. Um, and then we're also going to look at, historically, how we know these manuscripts were passed on because the original apostles wrote down the gospel texts, right? Paul wrote down his epistles, you know, such. you know, And then those, they were passed on, so we're going to look at the method that they were passed on. And we're going to ask ourselves, are these historically... Reliable. And then we're also going to look at a few other instances inside the text, internal testimony as to their reliability. Any questions so far? We on the same page? Awesome. Onward. Manuscripts. Now, let's say I had a piece of paper here somewhere. Has it vanished? Oh, here we go. A piece of paper. Uh, Will somebody read this for me? Here, will you read this for me? Mrs. Brundage freaked out because there was a dead snake tied around the classroom doorknob. That's an interesting story. Can you envision? Can you envision a teacher walking over to the classroom doorknob, and can you imagine a teacher freaking out because there's a dead snake wrapped around the doorknob? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, let's say that maybe we found that. Let's say that maybe we've. Yeah. Let's say that maybe we found that in this room on the floor or something, okay? Let's say that maybe that happened. How, what criteria, what, what questions would we ask ourselves to know whether or not we can trust that? Is this the person who, who? who? Okay, was who the person? So who is Mrs. Brundage? Yeah. Okay, so we'd say, is there any sort of reference that we have to Mrs. Brundage? Do we have any other, other reference to her so we can understand who she is? What else? What about this who thing itself? This who, wrote? who wrote this? And specifically when you're asking that question, you want to know... Who wrote, it. <laughs> who wrote it and is the person who wrote it a person who, who is reliable and what about, what about truthful? That's another one we want. But what about an eyewitness? Did they see this happen? Is shrieking out, uh, is, when they say the person shrieked out, you know, she freaked out. Is that like, are they stretching the story a little bit? Is that really what happened? We don't know. We weren't there, right? And what's another thing we might want to ask ourselves? Is this person the one that tied the snake there? <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're getting into motive. Yes. Somebody had a vendetta with Mrs. Brundage. No, um, I think another one that's really important. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Mrs. Brundage was actually a teacher in this classroom 11 years ago. So somebody who would have had to have been an eyewitness would have had to have written this when? When <laughs> Probably closer to the time period instead of say like somebody just wrote this a minute ago and threw it on the floor, right? How do we know the story hasn't changed? How do we know their memory isn't foggy? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we look at ancient documents, this is what historians use across the bar, what we want rather than in other fields of study where you want like current stuff like in medicine and science, you want the most current information, in history you are always looking for um, eyewitnesses and you're looking for early accounts. Does that make sense? because you don't want the story to have had time to grow wings. By the way, I actually was a student in this classroom under Mrs. Brundage and all of a sudden, if I told you that I was the author of this and you knew that I was a student who actually saw Mrs. Brundage and actually witnessed that scenario and I wrote it at the time, you would be much more convinced of the authenticity of this, right? Right. Does that make sense? Okay, so these are our two measurements that we're gonna move forward with. So, do we have eyewitness accounts? We'll look at eyewitness first. First thing, the early church did have several controversies. If you've ever read Acts 15, you know that one of the controversies of the early church is that Paul was discussing with Peter and James and some of the others the issue of what? Circumcision. Should the Gentiles be circumcised and should they accept everything from Judaism? Or is circumcision only for the Jews? If you move forward another few uh, centuries, maybe another thing that the early church is arguing about... Yeah, that, still an ongoing discussion for a lot of people, yeah. If you were to move forward about a century or so in church history, what you find is that the church is debating things like um, the nature of Jesus. Was he half God, half man, fully God, fully man, only fully man, and then became fully God, or only fully God, and then became fully... man. Th- so there, there are some uh, disputes. But you know one thing that they never disputed? He existed. That he existed and the authorship of the Gospels. Does that make sense? The early church, we have, no, we have no evidence anywhere that the authorship, that the four Gospel accounts, which I'm going to take as our four most important accounts, because that's where we learn the most biographical information about Jesus and we read the most of his claims. Does that make sense? Okay. So that was never a thing that was under question anytime in the first several centuries. In fact, that was never in question throughout the first, probably almost 1,600 years of Christianity. It's not until the Enlightenment and later on, and it's a conspiracy. Yeah, and I'd love to talk with you about it sometime that people actually started to ridicule this stuff. Justin Martyr is writing in probably about 50 to 60 years after the death of the Apostle John. And Justin Martyr, in referring to the four Gospels, by the way, even as early as then, he knew there were four Gospels. He mentions um, <clears throat> several times in his dialogue with Trifo, over 10 times, over 10 times he calls them the memoirs of the apostles. So Justin Martyr, that early on, is convinced these documents were written by the men that we have always known and believed them to be written by. Papius. Anybody ever heard of Papias before? Anybody ever heard of the apostle John before? Yeah. So you know how John was a disciple of Jesus? Papias was a disciple of John. We have lost most of Papias' writings. Some of them exist preserved through the writings of Eusebius about 200 years later. And Eusebius, um, Papias writes, as a disciple of John, he identified Mark and John as the authors of the Gospels that bear their names. So we know through a source, a person who knew John. Do you think John would know? John would probably know, right? John's, John's in the know. He's the beloved disciple, right? He'd probably know. We know the author of John was the Apostle John. We know the author of Mark was Mark, right? We move on. Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus. Have you ever heard of a guy named Polycarp? Anybody ever? Okay. So Polycarp is this guy who lived in a place called Smyrna, and he eventually well, was he was eventually killed and persecuted. He was one of the first, not not a first martyr, but he was an early martyr in the church. But Polycarp um, was. So we believe also a disciple of John. His life overlaps several years with John. And Irenaeus was a disciple of? Polycarp. Yeah, we know that. And he identifies Luke and Matthew as the authors of the Gospels bearing those names. So here's the thing. Just looking at writers from the, within 40 to 50 years of the last living apostle, we can historically verify the authorship of these documents. That kind of cool? Are we feeling all right about that? I'm feeling all right about that. Okay here's another exciting bit. Um, When the New Testament was compiled together, maybe you've heard of the canon of scripture before, uh, when it was compiled together and they decided officially which books were authoritative and which weren't, uh, they had several criteria that they went through. And one of the criteria was they only included books that the church has always known and has not been in dispute to have been connected to an apostle. Does that make sense? There were several other books. Maybe you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe you've heard people say, oh, there's a secret Gospel of Mary, and people kept it out of the Bible, and it's conspiracy. No, it's not. They knew it wasn't connected to an apostle. That makes sense? So the early church and their historical record had great confidence in the source of these. We feeling all right so far? Yes, sir. Jude. Jude. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, Jude, I believe, self-identifies as the brother of James, and early church records are are pretty certain that he was the brother of James, who was the brother of Jesus. And we was no- not an apostle, they still would accept it Thank you for that point. And that's another good one. Um, Mark, if you know anything about the, if you've ever sung this song, there were 12 disciples, Jesus came, you'll notice that Mark never comes up in that list, right? Neither does Luke. They're not disciples of, uh, they were not disciples of Jesus um, but we know through the writings of Ignatius, who was also a disciple of John, and we know the, through the writings of, I want to say it's Papius, but I'm not going to quote it for sure, uh, that it is Papias. Papias tells us that Mark put into, every, put into words Peter's account, that Mark would travel with Peter. John Mark traveled with Peter, the apostle Peter, and he put into words all the teachings of Peter. Does that help with that a little bit? And with Luke, for instance, we know from the Book of Acts that Luke was, at least at certain points in time, a travel companion of Paul. And Papius also tells us that it was through Paul's recounting of the gospel story that Luke transcribed that. Does that help with that? All right, good question. Thank you for clarifying. So the early, the early books. So the when I talk, when we talk about, when we talk about. They had to be apostolic. They were either written by an apostle or directly connected to a person who had interaction with that apostle and checked it on their authority. Yes, sir. I was going to say, what's to say that, yes, these apostles, these books were all this and apostles, but what's to say that they weren't all introduced? A conspiracy. I'm glad you asked. We're going to come to that in a moment, all right? If, if, if it doesn't answer it, let me know again, okay? All right, here we go. Um, by the way, uh, anybody ever heard of C.S. Lewis before? Um, he's, known yeah. for, he's known for a lot of things. A lot of people don't actually realize that uh, he wrote so many things about Christianity, people don't actually realize that he was actually a literature professor. So a professor at both Cambridge and Oxford spent the better years of his career uh, studying and analyzing medieval and uh, literature from medieval times and from antiquity. So he, he's got a feel for um, the, the series. Yeah, he's got a a feel for uh, literary genres. So he says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that none of them are like this, referring to the gospel accounts. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage. In other words, this is eye-hand witness. This is people writing down stuff that they saw that they know to be true or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative so some guy sitting in a ba- you know some guy sitting in a basement somewhere all of a sudden just anticipated this very very this style of literature that would become popular centuries and centuries and centuries later on and we have no reason to understand why that would be the case it seems a stretch of the idea so the other alternative is This is reportage, right? Okay, so that's about the eyewitness uh, nature. By the way, there's more on that if you ever want to talk about. uh, There's actually an exciting bit of information and I've had to cut so much because of time, Um, but we could get into, um, I think you can actually make a strong case, and this is actually cutting edge and right now in New Testament scholarship just in the last 10 to 15 years, that we believe we can trace the writings of Paul and specifically a creed in 1 Corinthians 15 all the way to with one, within one to three years of the crucifixion and resurrection itself. Um, so if you want to stay by afterwards, we can have a conversation about that. I'd love. I'll, we'll pull out our Galatians, we'll pull out our 1 Corinthians 15, I'll draw a little timeline on the board and we'll have fun with it. So if you want to stick around for that. Um, <clears throat> but what about the earliness of these accounts? Supposedly they're eyewitnesses. Do we have verification that these date to early? Because people are going to try to say, and this is a very common objection that you hear, listen, these accounts came together so much later on. It was at least two to 300 years until people started to actually write these down. We have no reason to know that they're actually within the close time period of Jesus' life. And if there's more time in between, there's more time for what to happen. For it to get changed, for the story to grow wings, right? For all of a sudden it to become just of mythic proportions. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a... That's why somebody wrote them down so that it wouldn't happen. Exactly. It's a great point. Okay, here we go. I want to give you a little bit of a comparison to other well-known historical texts that we have from the ancient world just to give you a little bit of a comparison. So you can... uh, I think you'll find this pretty interesting. Thucydides. Does anybody know who this guy is? Anybody ever heard of Thucydides? Have you heard of the Peloponnesian War before? Have you heard of, okay, have you heard of this? Have you heard of the Athenians fighting against the Spartans? Okay, so you've heard of that. That's the Peloponnesian War. It happened roughly about 430 years before Christ. So Thucydides is our primary major source when we do history for the Peloponnesian War, writing about the 5th century before Christ. Of all of his writings, we have an existence basically now only about eight good copies of that that are worth anything at all. So the, the entire writings of Thucydides on the Peloponnesian War, and this stuff is in my history textbooks that I teach with at any classroom throughout America. This is, I mean, these are pro, these are New one, right? New, uh, history books. in any textbook. They're going to use they're going to use people like they're going to use people like Thucydides for a source. So here's the thing, only eight manuscripts remaining, and of those eight manuscripts, the earliest one dates to 1,300 years after Thucydides. And nobody nobody questions, there's really no question on the historical veracity of Thucydides. All right, here we go. Uh, Maybe you've heard of Tacitus before. Uh, probably considered one of the greatest historians of the first century. Uh, he, was a, he was a famous uh, Roman historian. Something cool about Tacitus, he and one other individual, actually the two greatest historians of the first century, Tacitus and Josephus, both make a mention to Jesus existing as a her- historical figure. So um, there is one of these for you. I don't have time to go into all the sources that we have for Jesus having existed, but these are all the places in uh, antiquity that Jesus has mentioned within about a century or two by non-Christian sources, okay? So that's something that you can look at. That's pretty cool. Anyway, so Tacitus, uh, famous for his annals of imperial Rome. We've lost, we believe there was 18 books. We've only have, uh, the first six are the best uh, textually attested right now and we only have one good manuscript of Tacitus, which dates to 700 years later. And my friend, people generally consider this as we know what Tacitus said, and this is reliable history. Josephus, has anybody heard of Josephus before? So Josephus is high profile. You can't do first century history without Flavius Josephus. He was a general, uh, working, he, he was actually, he grew up in Jerusalem. He had a Pharisees upbringing. So he actually grew up in the education system of the Pharisees. And by AD 66, when the Jewish, the Jewish people were having the revolt against the Romans from AD 66 to AD 70, he jumped sides. You can imagine how the Jews felt about this. He uh, becomes a commander serving under the legions of Rome, serving under General Vespasian, who goes on to become Caesar uh, and actually goes on later to be uh, Vespasian's imperial court historian. So one of the highest profile historians of the day, if you are the, I mean, it's like being the historian for the White House, essentially. And Josephus, His uh, famous book, The Jewish War, The Wars of the Jews, we have only about nine Greek manuscripts left coming down to us, and they date from 800 to 1,000 years later. And yet Josephus is probably the primary historian consulted for almost any of our knowledge on, not any, but very much of our knowledge on first century Judaism. Ready for the fun bit? The New Testament written from the 40s AD to 90 this is about a guesstimate we have over 5,000 manuscripts the current number is just over 5300 in fact just this year March of this year they just confirmed the earliest ever finding of uh, a fragment of the Gospel of Mark it was just released Papyrus, It's called Papyrus 137. You can look it up. It dates to about 150 AD. Um, Dozens of these that we have date to within 200 years of John's life, and we have a few that date to even within 50 or less years of John's life. Are you you seeing the connection with how we have historically tested uh, documents that are early eyewitness accounts? Is that making sense? Here's the exciting bit. Textual scholars note that if needed, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament with basically almost guaranteed accuracy. Craig Blomberg says 97 to 90 percent of the New Testament can be reconstructed beyond any reasonable doubt, and he is a professional uh, scholar at Cambridge University who has spent the better part of his career looking at ancient manuscripts. Pretty cool stuff. Yes, sir. Um, in my discussions with Jewish uh, non-believers of Christianity. Okay. They often point to the fact that there were many ascents, playing ascents. Yes, that's a, that is a good point. Okay. There, okay. Is there any evidence of Gospels from those ascites? Um I do not know. Okay. I can't tell you that right offhand. Uh, what I do know is if you were to get into biblical prophecy for the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, you don't have uh, much of any of that with any of these comparison messiahs. Also, uh, the resurrection, which uh, usually becomes kind of the bastion of the argument uh, for Christians, uh, works a mighty axe stroke against other messianic claims, usually. So, yeah, that's a good question, though. I, I, can't, I, I, don't, I don't know of any right. I don't know necessarily. Certainly we can say this. The majority, uh, the world majority religion currently right now is Christianity. Now, Islam is fastly growing, but do any of these other followings have any sort of a movement of the same level of magnitude? That and and I think that's I think that's an interesting attest, like feather in the cap, you might say, to to Christ's unique claims. Yes, sir, Tom, right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and so that's that's sorry. Yeah, it's, it's very much a different thing. I think what he was referencing here is other Jewish claims to being the Messiah, but yes. The Gnostic Gospels date to uh, w- usually at least the end of the second century, and we know kind of almost beyond a reasonable shadow of a doubt that they were not connected to any sort of apostolic figure or somebody who had connection with an apostle. All right, so um, I hope this is good. Is this good stuff? Are we thumbs up on this? I think this is phenomenal stuff. This is the stuff that like, like I get excited about, you know what I mean? The interval then, listen to to it from Sir Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was the former director of the British Museum, who spent the better part of his career poring over ancient manuscripts. The interval then between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. The last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Um, This was, to my understanding, late 19th century. Yep. Um, F.F. Bruce who's considered one of the foremost uh, scholars in the New Testament uh, of the past century. The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. So what's he basically saying there? The reason people want to subject it to extra hoops that Tacitus doesn't have to jump through. That Thucydides, that any any of these author- that, that that Julius Caesar doesn't have to jump through is because of the absolute claims that Christianity makes. Exactly. Go back one slide. Three. Yeah, there you go. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, you got it? Here we go. How were, the, how were these early writings spread? So we know that, um, I'll, I'll give you the sad news now. We don't have any of the autographs. That is, we don't have any of the, this is the actual piece of paper that the Apostle John, that the Apostle Paul wrote on. We don't have that. What we do have is copies. What we have is early copies. Um, how were they spread in the early church? Um, we actually get a little bit of a clue. Actually, I'll read it to you. If you want to follow, you can. Go over to Colossians 4 if you have a Bible. Colossians 4, and I'll read to you verse 16. So Paul is writing a letter to the church at Colossae. It's a letter. Um, When it arrives, they read it out loud publicly in the congregation. And this is what it says in Colossians 4.16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So what are they doing with these letters? They're exchanging them. They're passing them around. And very likely, what is probably more than likely the case is that they're doing what with them? They're copying them down as they go. So people like to say, well, then all of a sudden you have so many people copying these down, somewhere it's got to get changed. Not so fast. Does anybody interested in earning a little bit of cash right now? I need a volunteer. Do you, are you as smart as a New Testament, uh, as a textual critic? I need a volunteer. All right, Isaiah, you're the man. Come on up. Okay, Isaiah, here's the thing. We don't have the original. Okay. Let's just say this is the Gospel of John. We don't have the original, but let's just say that we have four copies, okay? okay. And this is going to be a little bit of a made-up scenario, obviously. Okay. Keep in mind we have over how many manuscripts in the New Testament? Over 5,000. Okay, now let me make sure I have, I don't want to lie to you. Okay. I took my dog on a walk and I had a poop bag a little while ago. Oh, good. I do have the $10 bill. <laughs> I don't want I I to give you the, the other thing instead. Okay, so <laughs> let's say that we have four documents and you are a professional, all right? Okay. In copy one, we have maybe a, a misspelled word here okay. or maybe a word missing. Maybe it was torn up. Maybe it was so weathered that you couldn't read that word. Uh, we don't know what the case is, but we can't read that word there, okay? Okay. Copy two, we have an error or a mistake or something missing here, Mm -hmm. okay? Copy three, same thing here. And copy four, there. Here's the question. Do we have any way whatsoever? Is it possible that we know what the original said? Sure. Okay. What was it? And the word became flash and vault among us. Boom! Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. The man is a winner. Now, here's the thing. You were able to use your brain and to look at that just for $10. And there are people who make their whole career and earning a whole lot more money. And a lot of education goes into basically probably a souped up version of what you just did here. But basically, by comparing with the multiple versions that we do have, we are very, e- it's very easy to reconstruct the original. Does that make sense? Here's the really exciting thing. If every, you can have a seat. I mean, you can stand there if you want to, that's great. <laughs> have company, yay, okay. It's like when the, all the elders like leave the pastor on the platform after, and they all left him alone. Um, <clears throat> If every single English translation of the Bible, if every modern Spanish translation, if every modern Russian translation, if every modern translation of the Bible right now was to instantaneously just disappear, we could, with a high level of accuracy, reconstruct the entire New Testament. Um, which to me as a historian, that's just like, yeah Here's the thing then. The only way to successfully change the New Testament would have been to have access to every available copy in every church throughout the entire empire. Because anyone, somebody over in Philippi could just be like, no, that's not what it says. Look. And then a person over in Corinth would say the same thing. And then somebody over in Rome could say, oh, but it says this. And somebody over in Galatia could say, no, 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 no. That's not the case. Maybe and so, telephone. Yeah, <laughs> basically. How are we feeling about our New Testament? Hope you're feeling Good. <clears throat> There's some internal testimony as well. Um, Maybe you've heard of some of this before. Uh, Historical details listed in the gospel text. If you were to read uh, the opening chapters of the gospel of Luke, we're told that a certain guy named Caesar issued a Decree. decree and a census went out. And then it says, now this was the second census that Augustus issued while Quirinius was the governor. Why these names? If you're making up a myth, if you're making up a lie, if it's all made up, why Why is the story, why is the narrative so decorated with figures that we know well from history? The Gospel of Mark, who's like the very first person that the Gospel of Mark talks about? Do you remember? Who was the guy out preparing the way in the wilderness? John the Baptist. The Gospel of Mark basically almost opens with John the Baptist preparing the way. Do you know that Josephus writes a whole kit and caboodle about John the Baptist? We know historically that he is a verified person from secular sources. Um, the mentioning of Caiaphas. Just in the last 10 to 15 years, I was just watching a documentary last night, Dr. Hazel from Southern. we have found, They found a bone box ossuary of a member of the house of Caiaphas. Really? Yes. Absolutely. All these historical figures that are mentioned, Felix, Festus, why are they mentioning all these names unless this is set in a real historical context? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, establishing credibility. Hey, this is, this is something you can just look up. So we can have that seminar right here, right now. Exactly. That's it. Uh, Unnecessary details. Uh, So for instance, 153. Uh, Have you ever read in the gospel of John where they have a little picnic beside the sea, right? And they cook some fish because they had just pulled in some fish. Well, if you're just making up an account, why do you just randomly, and they caught 153 fish? Ah, Yeah. No, that reads more like authentic reporting of just what happened. Does that make sense? Another one, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus gets arrested. So, there's this weird part, and you probably read it before, and you're like, i never read that before. What happens when Jesus gets arrested in the Gospel of Mark? A young man runs away naked. We don't know what happened, but apparently with the scuffle with Peter and everything that was going down, and it was nighttime, and who knows what was going on. He's run. and some guy runs away, and maybe you know, he's trying to run for his life. Some people even believe that it was probably Mark who was writing the account, and he remembers it, and that's why he adds that in there. But why, that that does nothing for the story. It adds no, it has no theological purpose. I mean, maybe somebody has preached some really interesting sermon on that. Some like whatever you do, never. I'm not even gonna finish that. This this is being this is being recorded, y'all. Okay. But why do you include something like that, unless it just happened, right? Um, there's eyewitness claims could somebody really quickly go to First uh, Peter chapter 3 and can somebody go camp out for me in First John chapter 1 the first few verses who's going who's got First Peter for me alright Levi you the man uh, sorry I lied <coughs> a pox upon me for a clumsy louse Second Peter chapter 1 I was still in I was still in the other mode 2nd Peter chapter 1 and will you read um verse 16 for us For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his sense The text itself claims to be a witness account Does that make sense? First uh, John chapter 1. Who's over there for me? All right. Thank you, Doc. Could you read uh, <laughs> verses, um, just verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled with the word of one. What is John saying here? I, will... this is, I saw this, felt this, I touched this, I heard this. This is something that's true. The text itself claims to be eyewitness material. And then finally, maybe you've heard of this before, counterintuitive. What is something that's counterintuitive? The women had Jesus research. Okay, it's a great example. Why? Some of you are like, what? what? Because they didn't count as uh, witnesses. In court. Okay, and I think this is also going back to your point, Isaiah. If you were to make up this account, that this guy rose from the dead, and you want it to be, belie- be believable, and you really want this idea to sell, you're going to include a lot of like believable stuff that the audience, That first audience that's listening to your account, they're going to be like, oh, wow, that really adds up. Oh, that makes sense. Now, ladies, I'm sorry, but in the Greco-Roman world, and specifically in Palestine in the first century, your testimony doesn't really account for anything in court. In fact, you can't even be be considered a legal witness in in first century Judaism. So if you're making up an account, and the very first witnesses of the resurrection are women at the tomb? That seems kind of counterintuitive to what you're trying to accomplish. I would tell the uh, disciples what they saw, and then they can tell. What's yeah, making? Or if you're making up the account, you'd at least have some sort of prominent you know, early figure of the church like James or Peter or John or one of them be the first, the first eyewitnesses if you want it to really be convincing. Other counterintuitive details. Uh, the disciples kind of like hard-headedness can't grasp what Jesus is talking about throughout the entire, you know, I'm about to die, I'm about to be crucified, okay? And then they all left him. And they all abandoned him. In a day and age and in a place in the world, and this is just a thing with ancient manuscripts, what you find is when people are writing about themselves, the Assyrians did it, the Romans did it, a lot of people did it, how do you picture yourself? How do you write about yourself in the ancient world? In a positive light. In a positive light. Why are you including all this counterintuitive evidence evidence about we were all afraid and we all ran? And I understand that an objection still might be, but if they knew that and they wanted to be convincing. And so this is what I want to ask you guys. Maybe take a moment to discuss it amongst yourselves. Um, What would they have to gain from lying about this? Maybe take a moment. Take about um, 30 seconds or so. (laughs) Just discuss it with somebody next to you. What would they what would the disciples have to gain from making up that Jesus died and rose again? What would What would they gain personally out of this? What do you think? What do you think? Any thoughts? Yeah. Well, they could be building the foundation of a theology, belief system that people will follow for centuries and centuries. Okay, but what are they going to get out of it? What do they get out of it? Not much, but in transcendence. They have dominion. Power and influence. If anything, if, if anything, if anything, Jesus uh, told his his followers, he said, um, <clears throat> he says, you know, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, but not so among you. But let the, the leader be as one who serves. John 13, Jesus washes the disciples feet and he sets an example of service. What we find is that the seven who are chosen in Acts chapter one are chosen to serve. And what do we find about what they're doing with their money and with their wealth and their property in the early church? They're distributing it. And what do we find happens to Paul and to Peter and all the rest? Did, did, that's a huge one. How many of you have heard of a guy named Chuck Colson before? Okay. Chuck Colson was an individual who was actually part of the, the whole Watergate conspiracy with Kennedy. And he's actually written uh, at length on the resurrection, specifically saying I believe the resurrection because people will, people might, uh, people might suffer for something that they believe to be true and isn't true, but people are not going to go through all of that trauma and torment for something that they know to be a lie. In the Watergate, the, the, the whole issue came unraveled in a matter of weeks, and yet what we have is a faithful record of these individuals who go and take the gospel to the whole world, and they're shipwrecked, and they're stoned, and they're scourged, and we're going to get into what that is in just a moment, they're going through all this terrible stuff, and not one of them ever reneges on their story once. What do they have to gain from this? From a, and, and you know, From a strictly human perspective, they shouldn't want the gospel to be true. From a strictly human perspective. Now, since it is true, and there's more perspective than just the human perspective, it's the greatest news of all time imaginable. But you, 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 what you can't do, and I hope this is helping touch Isaiah kind of on your point. Uh, what, what you can't, I, I don't think we can do is try to make up some story that like they were really going to gain from this because we don't find any evidence of them gaining whatsoever. Did you want to jump in? No. Oh, you looked like you were like on the edge of the pool. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to mention about Polycarp. I mean, Polycarp was 88 when they killed him, basically. And he could have got out of that really easy at 88. Yes. But he didn't. He so chose different and same with all the apostles. I mean, I have a lot of credibility that I place on Polycarp because why would anybody do that? Exactly. Exactly. All right. Um, what we sometimes come to... Oh, we have limited time. Are we doing okay? Do you need to do something like this or something? I, I need to do it for my sake. All right. Oftentimes, when all of this evidence is cumulatively presented, what a person will ultimately say is, yeah, but Jesus healed people. And Jesus rose from the dead, according to the Bible. And we know that miracles aren't true. This is usually what you're going to find. Um, And usually I think there's kind of maybe three reasons. Maybe you could add to this. But uh, I want to take just a moment to look at this. People will say, science doesn't account for miracles, so they aren't true. Somebody want to come measure something for me? All right, Tom, thanks, my brother. (laughs) <laughs> will you, will, oh, dude, I don't have anything else. No, oh, wait, maybe I still have the bag that no, I talked about in my pocket. <laughs> uh, will you measure uh, just like the length of this? Kind of get like an approximation in inches maybe for us? Yeah, it's it's, 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 turns out the numbers go the other way. <laughs> <laughs> huh. 20 feet. Okay. Did you find that this was an effective tool for measuring this? Yes. Okay. Great. Now could you do one more thing for us? It's really hot outside. Could you measure the temperature? No. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Because this doesn't measure. But you just told me that that was a perfectly good tool. For what it needs to do. So it's <laughs> a good tool for certain things. Correct. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, friends. Uh, uh, <clears throat> We live in a day and age that has assumed that scientific knowledge is the only knowledge that we have, but have you considered for a moment that you can't scientifically prove that Napoleon lived? You can't scientifically prove that you like chocolate chip cookies, which you do. (laughs) You might know it and you might like demonstrate, look, I'm eating cookies, but like they might be tasting terrible to you. There um, There are things that you know that you might not be able to demonstrate scientifically. Scientific process, scientific spe- experimentation requires being able to repeat a scenario any given number of times in the similar in the similar conditions. You can't repeat Napoleon being alive, right? So this is the point. This objection is based on a faulty assumption. It's a logical uh, it's a logical misnomer actually, because this assuming that science is the only measurement for all things that are true. Consider for a moment that if there is such thing as miracles, is that natural or is that supernatural? Supernatural, supernatural right? Now, science deals strictly with nature, right? So you tra- trying to think that you could use a tool that is for natural to measure that which is supernatural is from the very onset a counterintuitive argument. Does that make sense? We follow? Okay, uh, here's another one. Miracles aren't real, so evidence including them should be rejected. Well, that's just not good science. Uh, I know that you are a scientist, or you were for a long time. When you're a scientist, do you exclude any evidence um, beforehand? Or are you willing, for the most part, to deal with any evidence? Um, I suppose you could. You might have pieces of data that you might discover for some reason. Okay. Okay. Okay, if you think it's credible, but there's criteria for measuring credibility, which requires analysis, right? So you don't right at the gate, dismiss something, right? Because a good conclusion should be willing to face any potential, uh, to, to consider any potential evidence. Does that make sense? Is that, are we we jiving with that? Okay, so basically what this is then to just say, well, miracles can't be counted because they're not real or they're not true. That's basically to start with a conclusion instead of starting with research. That's beginning with your conclusion, okay? So it's an unwillingness to consider evidence. Uh, And then finally, people will sometimes say, well, miracles, (laughs) whatever you want to say, that's fine with your logistical hoopla, but here's the thing. We don't see them happening, don't we? A noted scholar uh, named Craig Keener has just come out with an over, over two thousand, almost two thousand page book dealing specifically with the historical uh, reliability of miracles in the New Testament and citing thousands of miracle, no, sorry, hundreds, not thousands, hundreds of miracle accounts even now in the modern world. A reputed scholar, and this has gone through. I mean, this has gone through um, peer review and all sorts of stuff. It's really amazing. You can look it up. It's called "Miracles." Uh, I think defending the miracle claims of the New Testament. And the author's name is Craig Keener. Um, and so, and what? Uh, yes, sir. Once we understand the mechanism that Jesus used, it will be a miracle.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Say what? It's out of the natural order, so it's not the normal. It's not flowing from the natural workings of the system, but it's God feeding new events into the system. Yeah. 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 But... uh, Interesting, in, in that study that Keener did, he said that uh, almost one third of the non Pentecostals, sometimes when we think about miracles, we say, okay, well, you know, your statistics are corrupted because Pentecostals have miracles all over the place. Okay, well, not to throw uh, any flack at any uh, other denominations, but according to Keener's study, one third of Christians in the world that don't identify as Pentecostals have actually come to the faith, or uh, who have come to the faith have witnessed uh, miraculous healing according to his documented evidence. There's all sorts of exciting stuff that I was reading about it just yesterday. Very academic volume. And he's talking about even people that had limbs grow back. Uh, documented stuff that's happened in all sorts of places throughout the world. So this is my question. If we're saying miracles aren't part of normal human experience, well, of course, they're not normal. It's, ab- it's abnormal. That doesn't technically make it impossible. Here's my question. Whose experience are you considering? And are you turning a blind eye to some other people's experience? Because to make a statement like this is, and this isn't popular in the modern day and age, is basically to export our cultural way of thinking, almost an intellectual imperialism, on other places of the world. A majority of the world population does believe or claim to see miraculous things happening, and sometimes even on a regular basis. So maybe we're making an assumption about the cumulative human experience and only taking a really, 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 really tiny sampling of humans on the globe. If we're to remove all of these objections, and if we're to turn at large on the greatest of all evidences for the, uh, for the truth of Jesus' claim as we look at the New Testament, and that's none other than the resurrection. The, the case for Christianity rises and falls in the resurrection. Um, <clears throat> is there any legitimate reason that we can believe that it is a true and accurate Thing that actually happened in history. You have a sheet. I can't go through all of that with you. There are certain, uh, certain agreed-upon facts surrounding the resurrection story. We can reconstruct, even from non-Christian sources, that there was a person named Jesus who lived. We can, rec- uh, we can also reconstruct that he was crucified, that there was a report of some, there was some sort of a superstitious report afterwards, Uh, And if we can take the New Testament as valid history. Now, just because it was transcribed does not necessarily make it true, but it does mean that the people writing it down sincerely believed it to be true or at least were accurate in writing down what they wrote down. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So what we're looking at now is, is there any evidence that it's actually, in fact, true? We know that the tomb was found empty. We know that there was at least, we'll even be generous and call it supposed resurrection appearances. Um, We know that Jesus went through the process of Roman crucifixion. We know that the disciples were afraid and that they initially disbelieved. We know that the church started in Jerusalem. I'm going across the top uh, part here. We know that there was uh, some sort of an escape from the tomb. Uh, We know that there was a conversion of skeptics, really important to our case here. We know that the first women were witnesses. We know that he was buried in an honorary known tomb by a prominent citizen in the city. And we know that the lives of the Christians who believe this to be true was forever changed afterwards. There are a few attempts that people have tried to make to try to give another explanation for the resurrection, and I do believe that none of them add up. I'm happy to talk with you about any of that if you want to stay after. I'm going to take just a moment addressing a few of these. First of all, that he didn't die. You have something there called the swoon theory. Have you ever seen somebody swoon before? You pass out? So this, is a popu- this was for a long time was a popular theory that Jesus actually didn't die. It looked like he did. And he he had a lot of wounds and and maybe he went unconscious. But then by Sunday morning, resurrection morning, he was able to push the rock away and he was able to dupe the guards. And, and apparently so much so that they actually believed that they had witnessed something supernatural because the reports say that they were afraid and that he escaped and that he was also Never found because, listen, if the early, I mean, if, if the Pharisees were willing to send possibly their one of their best scholars all the way to Damascus to round up and persecute Christians, wouldn't it have just been easier to look in their own yard and in their own city to find the guy with holes all over his body walking around who's in a lot of pain? If he didn't die and he just somehow escaped? Yeah. Also, this is not taking into account the process of Roman uh, crucifixion. So it goes a little bit like this: If you are being cruci- crucified, um, you are first scourged. Do you guys know what scourged is? So you have the whip, but a lot of people don't realize that it also involves sheep bone. It involves chunks of metal, and not only does it just make stripes in your body, but it's actually designed to latch onto your flesh, rip your flesh open, and even puncture uh, critical organs in your body, specifically the lungs. Now, do you know how does a crucifixion victim usually die? Suffocation, right? So uh, in 1968, they found an individual who was buried in an ossuary. His name was Yehonan, and he's the one of the main sources, archaeological sources that we have for Roman crucifixion. And the way it actually worked is that your feet, you know, not just like you know, we see the pictures where Jesus is standing on a pedestal. No, you don't have a pedestal. Your feet are actually put on the sides, and you're nailed through by the heels. You're nailed through by the heels and it's done in a position where they bring your knees up really high so your your legs are cramping up, okay? So you're in this really tight position, your arms are nailed up behind you, major nerve endings, and what you're doing is you're kind of almost clumsily falling forward and struggling to take a breath and to get a breath you have to pull yourself up, but when you pull yourself up, what's happening. You're putting extra weight and tension on those nerve endings, and it feels like a uh, modern physician has described it as if you were to take a vice grip on your funny bone and crush Is it. A, uh, yeah. Board or something that he had his feet on. Most of the sources that we know about Roman crucifixion, there's no board they have their feet on. They're dangling, suspended to a piece of wood, in an awkward and precarious position. Now, keep in mind, before that, he has received the scourging process, which would have lacerated his back, opened up his body basically, and punctured his lungs, which means that it, the lungs would be filling up with fluid, making it harder to breathe. There is no... Med- In fact, there has been extensive... I'm happy to share any of this information with you if you want it afterwards. There's been a lot of medical research done by medical professionals on the crucifixion process, and the unanimous consensus is that Jesus died. There is not a shred of credible uh, evidence that Jesus would not have died. Um, so I think the swoon theory doesn't really do much. Wrong tomb. I'm, I'm just going to say one thing about this. Some people, two things. Some people say, oh, well, they got the wrong tomb. That's what it was. That doesn't ex- explain resurrection appearances. Just because the tomb is empty doesn't mean they see him later. Right? And also, the gospel account records that Jesus was buried where? Joseph of Arimathea. What do we know about him? He's a member of the... Sanhedrin. And what is the Sanhedrin in first century Jerusalem? It is one of the supreme governing bodies right underneath Rome and Herod and the governor. I mean, it's, it is a prestigious, I mean, these are wealthy individuals. Um, this would have been a known person. This would have been a known tomb. This is not the type of thing that you can just, oops. And also... Why didn't they just, instead of bribing Roman soldiers, instead of sending people out to persecute the early church, why didn't the Jewish leaders, if it really was the wrong tomb, just go and find the right one? Hey, Joseph, where's your tomb again? Oh, yeah, it's over here. Okay. Oh, look, there he is. Never happened. You realize that that's the only thing that ever had to happen to stop the early Christian movement was to produce the corpse of Jesus, and that could not happen. They could not do that um, hallucination. This is an exciting one. So the theory goes like this. Um, well, Jesus died and Jesus was buried and then supposedly his disciples saw him or whatever. So they must have been hallucinating. Okay. Well, that's not accounting for a few things. Um, most specifically, um, here, I'll read you this. I think this said it best and I didn't want to put it on the screen. Just This is from uh, Gary Collins, who wrote this in 1998. He is a clinical psychologist. Hallucinations are individual occurrences. By their very nature, only one person can see any given hallucination at a time. They certainly are not something which can be seen by a group of people. Neither is it possible that one person could somehow induce a hallucination in someone else. Since a hallucination exists only in this objective personal sense... It is obvious that others cannot witness it. Now have you ever had a, a dream that you were at a beach or some wonderful beautiful place and then you woke up and you were actually in Michigan and it was January? <laughs> Has that ever happened to you before? And then maybe sometimes you can actually even go back to sleep and almost sort of try to work your way into that dream again. But what you can't do is this. You can't turn to your you know if you're, if you're your spouse, you can't turn to your spouse and say, "Hey, Uh, I'm going to a beach in Tahiti in a dream right now. Can you meet me there in five minutes? (laughs) And yet the claim that numerous amounts of people would experience the same hallucination at one time is essentially the same type of claim as that. It doesn't happen. It's an impossibility. Furthermore, this doesn't account for an empty tomb. Right? So um, if we're to just look at the evidence available and say which of these explanations makes the best sense of the information we have. Uh, I think we're seeing where this is going. Finally, the conspiracy theory. Well, they made it up. Well, they made it up. Well, somebody go to Mark 3.21 really quickly? Mark 3.21. And while that's happening, I'm gonna read to you something from 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to read this really quickly before that. Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm starting in verse 3. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once. By the way, that's a hallucination of 500 people all at the same time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Alright? Now who is James? Brother, his brother Brother, of Jesus. We know that. Uh, we know that from Galatians. Galatians tells us that. Galatians chapter one. Well, somebody read Mark 3:21 really quickly. But when his own people heard about this, they went out and they them, and they said, he is hold of him. Okay. His own people, and some versions say his family, right? His own people, his family. Mine says when his family heard it. Here's the thing. If James is part of Jesus' family, and we have other incidents, like when they're teasing him about going to the Passover in the Gospel of John, and John, remember? If we have other incidents where we show that his family was not a supporter of him, then something must have happened for James between thinking his brother was insane or out of his mind to becoming a follower of Jesus. Because if we go to Acts 15, we find that James is all of a sudden one of the premier apostles who's presiding over the Jerusalem conference. All of a sudden, James is somebody who's a big-time believer. How many of you have a brother that you fought with when you were a kid? What would it take for you to be convinced that your brother is God? (laughs) How about a a resurrection? How about a resurrection? Here's the thing. Even if it was a conspiracy, how do you make sense of the individuals like Paul, the individuals like James, who were dead set against the gospel message and vehemently, at least in Paul's case, vehemently against the gospel message. This is not the type of person who's an easy culprit, who's easy bait to all of a sudden become a follower, unless there's something true about the story, which I say, ladies and gentlemen, the best theory that makes sense of all the data, if we put aside our Western prejudice, and that's what it is, against miracle accounts, and if we're to treat the historical documents of the New Testament the same way we treat any other historical documents, Jesus rose from the dead. Isn't that exciting stuff? Ah! Uh, the most famous debate ever, probably between a Christian apologist and an atheist on the resurrection. Presided over by an official judge who was an acting judge at the time, the historical evidence, though flawed, is strong enough to lead reasonable minds to conclude that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. Habermas does end up providing high probable evidence for the historicity of the resurrection with no plausible naturalistic evidence against it. A little more recent, Lord Darling, the former Chief Justice of England. There exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. Jesus is a real person. Jesus is a real person. He made some really big claims about who he is. Well, you can't treat that as minimally important. That's either of incredible importance or no importance at all if it isn't true. The New Testament documents of some of the best preserved from the ancient world. That is just a reality. The gospel claim is true as it makes the best historical sense of the resurrection data compared to other uh, interpretations of the resurrection. And finally, Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm sorry we don't have time for questions. If you have a question, we have another session on Friday where we will be doing specifically a question and answer. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to make available to you as much as I can any uh, resources that I've, uh, that I've used. I'm happy to talk with you afterwards. Thank you for coming. You. I hope this has been enlightening for you. Let's close with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father God, you are good. It is nothing short of a miracle that your spirit has preserved your word through centuries and generations accurately and reliably to us today. Thank you for coming to save us. And Lord, may we be effective ministers for you in everything we do. Because you're coming soon and we want to live to that end, Father. To bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to your resurrection. To be ready at all times to give an answer a reason for the hope that we have in us, Lord. But may we do it in a spirit of love. May your spirit have complete control of us. Bless my friends now as they go about the rest of their day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse dot org.